everybody, and welcome to another episode of our epic X-Men reread here on Crushing Comics. I'm joined by my friends, Tyler and Fariha, and we are here to continue our read of Claremont's classic era of classic X-Men in Uncanny X-Men. And today we are tackling Uncanny X-Men 112 and 113, as well as their supporting classic X-Men issues and the backup story in classic X-Men number 19. So this is pretty fun stuff. It's the first real blowout against Magneto. We had a, a brief blowout against him a little bit earlier, but this yeah. is like the first real Magneto confrontation beginning in 112. And we start out here in Magneto's magical magnetic flying wagon as he abducts the X-Men <laughs> from their carnival experience. And he's like, I can show you the world as he flies them across <laughs> the sky. What do we think about this? <laughs> so the wagon is made out of wood. Like it's a wooden <laughs> wagon. It is a wooden it's not wagon. A, it's not a metallic wagon. It's not a like train locomotive. Have, no, we have seen now Magneto can move space stations and all that. Like he has reached that level. But I guess you always have to stare somewhere small where it's like you're moving the screwdrivers in the wagon and then move that from that way. I mean, you know, as an engineer, this and this is like it's such a bad thing because as a reading this as an adult, because you kind of do this nitpicky as a kid, you probably is like whatever is a flying <laughs> wagon. But as an adult, you're like, well, how is that flying? Well, <laughs> they definitely play a little fast and loose with his power yeah. like throughout history between like he's got he can throw around Wolverine or Colossus because they're made of metal, but he can put other people in a magnetic force bubble, but sometimes there's yeah. iron in their blood, and that's enough. I mean, he can move yeah. whatever the author wants him to move, I think. Is, that's, I think yeah, ultimately, ultimately, that's what it is. Yeah. But, you know, it was... Uh, now, it, I actually really enjoyed these two issues because, you know, the last time we didn't get enough of Magneto because Cyclops played chicken, but uh, <laughs> or Cyclops turned chicken, but this time around we get to have like, a good fight. So from that point of view, this was very much A plus from me. <laughs> I mean, I agree that this is a fun one. And um, I mean, we, we, we start off with like how many characters in that splash page. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine characters squeeze in. And I kind of like, you know, right off the bat that um, only the characters are in color. Like the backgrounds are all in like one shade and it just mm -hmm. focus on them. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is one of the classic stories that I actually remembered um, from my very first time when I read through and I was like, oh, okay, I remember this. Okay, I remember the flying wagon, and I remember where they're going, <laughs> and yeah. But um, I I can't remember if 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 it was ever explained about his his him able to fly the <laughs> the wooden wagon. Is I think there was some convoluted thing about how he can manipulate gravitational force and 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 stuff like that. So, but um, yeah, there's well, neither it, neither, the neither here when when we first. Yeah, but when we actually first started, you didn't even know that it's a flying wagon. It's actually like after uh, uh, Nightcrawler tries to bamp yeah. out of there, it's like, oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> and, and right, it has to preserve the surprise. Stairs. 
So, yeah, exactly. so the thing is, like, it actually kind of comes a little late because when I was first reading it, I thought that they were still in that circus because, you know, when the Magneto yeah. reveals himself and then yeah. justice is. But then when you realize that, oh, no, it's actually a flying, it's more intense than that. But yeah, I mean, I that, mean to, to be honest, that was the intention, like, comic like the surprise, because. Well, I mean, a couple of things in there. So right. one of them, I really love Tyler's point that in that first page, how the backgrounds are knocked out. Like if somebody did a modern recolor of this page, you know, it'd be a bunch of them with shiny hair and the background would have this like accurate, everything, little tchotchke would be colored <laughs> yeah. because people in the modern day don't understand how to color comic books. Uh, <laughs> you, there's, there's a, and I like a lot of modern coloring, but there's a whole purpose to this knocking out of the background. Mm. More modern creators could stand to do this because people draw so much detail and you need contrast to be able to see figures on a background. So if that, you know, I like that as a trope. But then also, I think, Tyler, you're the one to point this out that, like, we kind of flash back a little bit to the carnival and Magneto's just wandering around at the carnival. Like, we see him, like, stalking Beast and everybody's like, yeah. oh, hello, sir. Like, he's just... Yeah. He's just, that's normal. It's the place where Magneto can just live out and his and live loud with his sartorial choices. Because because Mesmero is right there, too. And Mesmero's exactly. costume is certainly more ridiculous than Magneto's costume. <laughs> yeah, but like... Well, it, uh, <laughs> I was, I'm trying it, to say it's like a furry beast is, is, is the outcast where someone with like a a helmet and a cloak is like, oh, I can just walk around and nobody <laughs> except this small kid was like, oh, pointing at him. And that's about it. Um, the, you know that if this was written in uh, modern life, this would like modern world, it would be written in a comic convention. Like, you know, so this was like an old timey comic convention, which is a carnival. But nowadays it would be written like for a <laughs> comic Are there car, even carnivals? Like, this is such like an old timey America trope. Actually, so there is one here. I was so excited. I saw a Facebook ad because everybody in this whole country is on Facebook. Like the prime minister gives addresses directly to Facebook. It's weird. Uh, and I went to this thing and it was it was this carnival. Like it was all people with like wagons hitched up to trailers doing their thing and then at the end of the day they just all drive off with the trailers and i was trying to think is that even a thing in the united states that i've ever seen in my many many years of living in the united states have you ever been to a carnival like this in your times in the living in the united states no. well i moved here 2007 so i don't know what was life like before that because <laughs> it seems like a lot of old-timey comics people are going to carnivals i think by then they just kind of turned into fairs but my yeah. question is if it's a new zealand carnival where are they going i mean it's a small country like well, how don't... many times they're traveling they it's, i'm fascinated by it it's called the extravaganza fair and they don't there can't be rides here right because there's so many crazy roads you have to go over and mountains and stuff so there's yeah. really not a lot of like roller coasters and stuff there is this one little fair that comes here and it's um and it has like one tiny little ferris wheel and my kids like woo and i'm like this is not even a ferris wheel but anyway <laughs> so these people just do a big circuit of the of both islands they take the ferry across to the south island mm. and do a circuit and then mm. when the when it winters they kind of like hunker down for a few months and and then when it comes spring they just travel around they just do one big loop around the whole uh, interesting of new zealand i think Someday i think this is take more, me there the, one day for you um <laughs> let, let's hope someday soon but this this it makes me just think that it's one of these old-timey america tropes that you can't even write in a comic to your point like today if you wanted to do this exact story you would have to set it at a comic convention or like a renaissance fair or something because it's just not even a thing, <laughs> this idea of a traveling carnival. Yeah. 
Right. And then if you're walking around like that, there will be a lot of background characters who are just taking pictures. Right. It would just like, all be like, people on their phones. What is this? Yeah. Yeah. I'll be people <laughs> on the phone. So, yeah. Um, so I was actually kind of reminded of like, you know, Tyler, you said that uh, when they were writing this before, they were always assuming this is someone's first comic. Yeah. Because there's a lot of that trope in here, too. It's just we just saw they're in the in the carnival and everything but then it gets explained again over yeah. like two three pages how he came to be yeah. like how he is like i went from here to here then i went to here and then i found you guys because i'm the only one who can defeat you no one else but, but it was so repetitive though i know but i mean the 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 cool thing here is that even though it's a recap it's a recap from magneto's perspective it's like, how did Magneto came into the picture here? Because the last issue, what we saw him was like, he just he just came up behind Beast, knocked him out, and then like, like <laughs> destroy uh, Mesmero, right? So basically, mm-hmm. you know, then we'll be like, oh, what? Magneto is just so conveniently, you know, uh, at the same fair that the X-Men were mesmerized. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, I mean, in this case, um, I think Claremont and Byrne found a way to sort of do the exposition and the recap as part of the story, which I thought was kind of clever. The other- I-, I thought so too. Like, you know, it's like, it's not, even though it's kind of like back to back. So as I'm reading back to back, it can be a little bit of yeah. issues, but at, at the same time, I'm like, well, you know, the fact that he went to the Xavier's uh, mansion and everything, that's just kind of some new information. Uh, but I think like a, some of it I could have done without the dialogue and mm-hmm. then just by pictures that could have been explained very well. Sorry, Peter, I interrupted you. No, fine. Uh, I th- The lag between us is like half a second. So sometimes we're oh. both talking in a... Yeah. <laughs> uh, You know, something that occurs to me here that I find really clever, too, is this implication of a deeper life for Magneto. So often in these Bronze Age stories, it's kind of like villains just show up on a whim and do their thing, and then the heroes defeat them, and then they go back in a box. But Claremont is really taking the time to basically say, after their last confrontation, Magneto, newly not a baby, has decided that he's been missing out on the scene. Like, he needs a plan. And so he Mm. takes the time to, like, you know, reconstruct this base and make this big plan. And he realizes that if he's going to do what he wants to do, he's got to get rid of the X-Men too. And it's interesting to me, not only because it implies that, but because we don't even really get to the whole point of whatever Magneto's intending to do. This is like step one of his nefarious plot, which is like, make sure the X-Men don't get in my way. And then then it kind of just gets left there for the moment. But I actually think that's really clever. Like, I I think it's actually pretty deliberate on Claremont's part that they're not stopping him from, you know, holding the world hostage or anything. This is actually Mm -hmm. Magneto having an off-screen life and going through his own arc. And you can really feel that if you take out all of the Magneto appearances in this early Claremont period and just read them sequentially, like he really has an arc. He doesn't just show up and then fade away and then show up again. Yes. So was he supposed to be kind of set up to be more than just a enemy of the of X-Men or he was there always planned to kind of make him what we see him as today? Like, you know, sometimes friends, sometimes enemy. Well, it's... it's- is something that Claremont did, I think. Um, the oh. Silver Age Magneto is just like ah, I'm a I'm an evil villain. I come here, I like, want to destroy, destroy like, people. Yeah, you know, yeah. And then uh-huh. oh, I have this brotherhood of like ugly mutants, except for Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, who quickly join the Avengers. So, um, 
So so that's that's his plan, like you know, in the Silver Age. But once um you know once we start here, like especially from here, I think his first appearance was more like oh you know he's still um kind of under the influence of Eric the Red, um or you know because Eric the Red basically regrow him into an young adult, um and then but from this point onwards there is um there is something more to it. Maybe not fully realized here yet, but as as we see more and more of him appear, he becomes a little bit, you know, more gray than just black and white. Mm. And also, I think that this is very much Claremont very much like stakes his claim on Magneto again. We just came from, of course, reading some of his in between issues in our last episode. And like, you know, Kirby was just using him in this irrelevant, although highly amusing way. And that <laughs> Captain America article or episode issue. Yeah. And uh, this is like Claremont being like, no, he's an X-Men character. I- I'm going to hold on to him again. And if yeah. you are reading sequential Magneto, he doesn't really make a lot of appearances outside of X-Men here. He appears in these few issues. Then he appears in Uncanny X-Men 125. Then he appears in Uncanny X-Men 147 through 150. Then he's in God Loves, Man Kills. Like, Claire, he doesn't make a non-Claremont appearance for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. So he's being very much like brought back into the fold so Claremont can construct this arc for him. Thanks. So uh, he takes them back to his under volcano base. Mm-hmm. And I think this is really interesting. And I'll kind of have to talk about both issues for a second here, although we will go through 113 yeah. in, in whole, is that Claremont contrasts the team fighting apart and here, which the team does badly constantly. And it's almost kind of like a commentary on Claremont writing them in an unimaginative way. Like I can almost hear like Byrne mocking him in the background, <laughs> like, oh, you're going to throw them one at a time against them again? Only so that they, they can do the flip side in 113 and kind of like be effective. And yeah. and so this to me is the turning point of this run when we go from this very like vague team of separate heroes who happen to be together to a team of X-Men. That happens for me between 112 and 113. Yeah, I mean, and I think... But isn't um, that something we have seen before again and again? Like, how often do they have to... Do we have to see this? I think that's one of the reasons I was a little bit like, okay, okay, come on. We have gone through this before, just the same way. Just because now Beast is involved, now all of a sudden you lost your team dynamic again. I mean, that's why I was a little bit, ugh. Yeah. I mean, like, Cyclops did even mention it, like, he was thinking about it. It's like, oh, no, we, we, we did this the wrong way. We're attacking him, like, one by one. And it's like, so, so that was, I mean... Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I I completely agree that like um the fight scenes are not very imaginative at this point, um and then and then it's gonna change, but you know I, I don't understand how Colossus and Wolverine do not understand that they are the they 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 are the worst people to go against Magneto, <laughs> like why are they still attempting to attack him? <laughs> Uh, it, it doesn't Clear, make sense clearly, they didn't cover that in the danger room on their many sessions that have occurred between <laughs> one hundred four and here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess. But I'm the not thing is, do they? Do well, they, they know should be that training is... against him in the danger room now because they met him in one hundred four, right? Mm-hmm. Like before, yeah. their excuse was he, he was a baby, but now he's a threat right. again. <laughs> 
Well, and I want to just be clear. I'm not saying the fight in 112 is good. I just, yeah. I personally kind of see this as the turning point where whether it's the character, Claremont writing the characters having recognition of that or Claremont having recognition of that or Byrne potentially bullying Claremont about that <laughs> or maybe even that Byrne can actually handle that many characters in a panel having a fight a, a way that Cochran maybe couldn't, that yeah. all of these factors conspire together to kind of like finally move the needle off of these fights where they just throw themselves yeah. one at a time at villains. Not that we won't see that again, but one 113 really marks like the change for me. Yeah. But here's the other thing, talking about repetitive beats. If you try to just logic your way through this issue, Magneto kidnaps the X-Men from where they're being hypnotized into being in a circus to bring them somewhere else to hypnotize them into thinking they're babies. That this is his plan? Like, why didn't he hang on to Mesmero? Like, what? he? They could have just stayed in the circus. He was, yeah. he was free and clear. Why did he need... It's just, like, so funny to me if you sit and think about what actually happens in this issue. He's like, I'm going to do better at hypnotizing you. <laughs> like, that's his whole plot. But it was also very scary, though. Because it was very... I was scared. I was scared yeah. that even though it was, like, super hilarious, because you, were, you have to think that, you know, the way they're all kind of stuck in that chair... Uh, they're not wearing pants, right? Because they can't be. Because the waist has to go somewhere. <laughs> like, you know, so... I'm sorry. Back up. How did we get to their not wearing pants? I need you to just take because, me step by step through this development. Because, okay... So the thing is, he had them... Like, you know, like he had them captured there. And he's force-feeding them. So the waist has to go somewhere... So the chair, it has to have been designed in a way so their pees and poos are out of there. Or else, how is that working? Do you That's ever what talk I'm saying. to anybody who does like a lot of surfing and wears a wetsuit? And they're like, I just pee in the wetsuit. And you're like, but that's inside. And he's like, and they're like, yeah. That's how I've kind of always assumed that the unstint, not to, I don't know why we're talking about this, but here we are. That's how, so, so that's how I've always assumed these unstable molecule um, costumes work. Like you, not everybody on a mission has time to get out of these crazy spandex one disease to, to go number one. I assume you kind of just pee true. and the molecules are unstable and they release it as steam or something. I don't know. This Ew! <laughs> Ew! There's like a piece team coming out okay. of them. But it doesn't... Anyway, listen. Okay, so this is what I'm telling you. This yeah. is what happens when you read these things as adult. It really ruins everything for you. <laughs> well, but... It, yeah, sorry. What I was going to say, though, it's really scary because they want... They, he really wanted them to feel how he felt. Because apparently, whenever... Even though when he was turned into a baby, he yeah. had full memory intact and he could feel right. everything. And now he wants them to feel that, like, you know, that horror that he felt. I thought that was really scary. I thought this was like Magneto in its peak and Ooh. in his peak. And mm. I was very impressed by this. Like, I'm like, well, this is a villain, a proper villain. Well, I mean, this is also motivated by revenge, right? Because if he, mm. has, le he, if he had left them, you know, under Mesmero's, um, uh, um, whatever, How? like hip hypnotism, um, it's not a revenge for him because he wasn't involved in it. Right. So his, I think his main, even though his explanation is like, yeah, I, I need to get the X-Men out of the way. But I think part of the motivation is also like, well, they have to feel what I felt for the past, you know, however long period I was a baby. So, um, yeah. 
But then, like, so let's the come back. To, sorry. No, no, I'm saying that it wasn't them who put him as a baby, though, is it? Right, it it was, was, and it was only, like, Professor vaguely X. Xavier who made them, yeah. made him into a baby. So so this was even bigger revenge. So it's not, like, you know, it's like Xavier's children. Like, yeah. I'm not going to, like, it's not just Xavier directly, because but it's going to be Xavier's children True. that I'm going to take from him and yeah. then... Turn them, make them feel what I felt. So I yeah. thought that was like scary as That's villainous. Yeah. No, but 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 can we take a look at the art that that Burn drew for the underground base? Like I I thought that was really really good. I I don't know how he came up with that. Like you know all the mechanicals parts that he he just like he basically just just jibble them in like you know all the squares and all the lines and and things like that. I thought it was pretty cool. Very, Every very time I see that, I mm. always... It is very Star Wars. And this is... I guess maybe this is after Star Wars, finally? Let me look probably. at the, Yeah, we're in 78 yes. now. So they've yeah. probably seen Star Wars. Uh, it also feels to me... It always makes me think that the structure of the base is going to be more important. Like, it feels like one of those guns in the first act. And then it's, like, not super important what the structure of the yeah. is, other than that the lava is sitting right on top of it. But I, every time I see that page, even this morning making notes, I'm like, ooh, that base is going to really come in hand. Like, no, not yeah. really. No, not uh, really. Yeah. But, um, but I think you both make really good points that's somewhat lost on me because I get a little bit um, into the comedy of some of these mm-hmm. plot decisions. But this is a, a fearsome Magneto because it's a Magneto who... He's, this is not world, world domination, right? This is really personal. He, mm-hmm. He's got a specific personal vendetta that he's yeah. trying to live out here, which I think makes him a little different than Silver Age Magneto because it's not as farcical, you know? Yeah. It's, a, it's a very specific attainable plot. But before he gets there, he does have to have this fight. And while the fight itself is unremarkable in many ways, there yeah. are a couple of things of note in the fight. One is that Storm does something other than just, like, throw a lightning bolt. You know, she, she like, actually does something, which I think is interesting. But to me, the most interesting thing is Jean here. So we've already established that Claremont wanted to make Jean so hardcore that she could throw down with like Thor or Silver Surfer, and mm-hmm. Marvel editorial, editorial wouldn't let her do that. And so he instead got her to fight Fire Lord, because by transitive property, Fire Lord had like beat them at some point. But yeah. now we have Jean throw down against Magneto, who for many, many times has been shown as able to take out the whole X-Men team. And she she's really standing toe-to-toe to him, and she shows this whole Phoenix Raptor, and Magneto really thinks he's going to get hammered here by Gene yeah. just for a second. And then... And then... He does <laughs> She hits her limit. Yeah, a circuit yes. breaker. Yeah. A, yeah, a speed breaker. I mean, this is what I'm telling you. I'm really yeah. tired of this. I'm really tired of this. Like, <laughs> I'm like, seriously, stop it. Because, you know, as soon as I got there, I'm like, of course, honey, you reached a speed limit. I'm like, oh, please. But she's and, a but reading, now. She's but, no longer Marvel girl. But reading that in the scope of the run, it always makes mm. me wonder if... Even the Phoenix itself realized there had to be a limit between Phoenix and Dark Phoenix and and that the power had there had if she pushed past that, it would kind of give in to all the darkest urges of the Phoenix force. Mm-hmm. And I th- and that's why she hits this limit suddenly here. I know that from a trope standpoint, it's just another way of limiting a woman in a way that we wouldn't do to a male character. But at the same time, I wonder if it's kind of almost like she could have gone Dark Phoenix if she had to push harder, but she yeah. didn't. 
yeah. possible. Like when you look at it from that whole history point of view, it's possible. I mean, it's not that okay. There's like other male characters who fought against him and didn't couldn't take him, right? But the thing yeah. is, her power is supposed to be so much different. Her power is supposed to be so much more. That's one of the reason it's I have always a like a complaint about this is that. It's not the usual power limit that other characters have, right. you know, because they are either fighting physically or because of their physical, you know, thing that they are doing it. Her supposed to be different. And yet we always get this limitation on her. And I just, I don't know. I, I don't know how to. And, and obviously, like she, had, like, she had to be defeated because we needed the next story yeah. big points to happen. I don't know if there's a different way of doing it. Maybe, you know, when he shoved Beast, like Beast just took her out as well or something like that. You know, do it that way versus like, oh, you know what? Reach the limit. Well, as a Slow down, girl. I mean, as a standalone uh, incident, I can see why, why this is like, uh, another powerful woman getting... Um, having to put a, a a limit so that she doesn't get so powerful, you know, mm-hmm. that she overshadows everyone. But in the greater scope of the story, I think like Peter al- alluded to, um, there is a reason why this is happening. Because right. when later on, when you see her basically um, exit that circuit breaker, things changes. So, so without these you know, first few incidents where she hit her limit and her powers just damped down. Um, mm. You don't... I mean, you, you get to see it once in the M current uh, crystal, but at that point, she also has the support of, like, other people, um, you know, with her. So, like, in this case, she's alone. And then later on, you will see, like, what happens, like, in the Dark Phoenix saga when, when things get really bad for her. Well, and to Claremont's credit, these are the two things that he kind of tries to fix in the classic X-Men revisions to this issue. He gives us a big spread of all the X-Men kind of reacting to Magneto, which is the thing that we're missing here where we're saying, don't Colossus and Wolverine know. Like, Claremont's like, yes, they've actually been thinking about how fearsome he is. And he also gives us much more detail to the Magneto face-off of Jean, which honestly has become my main version. Like, as I'm flipping Mm. through the issue right now, I'm like, gosh, this is awfully brief because I actually remember the classic version of it, which is a Mm. lot more about how Jean has untapped levels of power and it's like seductive to her and she actually like pulls herself back from the brink a little bit. So I think that my my reading of this issue is flavored by the fact that I remember the uncanny mm. issue. But, you know, it ends... Uh, you know, for, uh, to Freya's point, with they're all totally captive. There's a robotic nanny, which is not the same as nanny nanny. It's a, yeah. just a robot. Right, okay. A I, was, I was so disappointed by that, you guys. <laughs> when I looked it up, I'm like, seriously, this is not the nanny no. nanny? Aww. I like, hope Pikmin connects it all. Maybe, maybe he'll just... <laughs> Maybe he'll just. No, make where it. is this nanny now? We need some nannies in the in the Krakoa no, to but, take but, care of but, babies. But look at this, right? At, at this point, Magneto is not only a super engineer. He built right. the base. He is also a great computer programmer because he could he could he could program the nanny and and, and a neuroscientist because and a doctor because he 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 make them like the body like regress to an age of like a baby. So, so no, I actually wanted to bring that up though, because it's like, where is this version of Magneto now? <laughs> like he, he could have done it all. Like, you know, what's the point of Sage, uh, not Sage, Forge anymore? Like we don't need Forge. 
Well, it's really interesting because at the time, it was like every character was a super scientist. I mean, if you look at all the major Marvel heroes, almost every one of them was some kind of super scientist. And that was just, so of course Magneto would also be a super scientist. Now there's like stratification, right? You you need a tech guy. You need a cum side girl. You need a pilot person. You know, like, but but at the time, at the time, it was kind of all in one. It was kind of it was kind of interesting because the X Men kind of weren't like Kurt is yeah. kind of a medic and like they all can kind of fly the Blackbird, but none of the X Men really play out that like super smart trope other than Beast, of course, until Kitty, and that's Claremont mm. like playing with this trope that like all of the classic mm. heroes are are these everything engineer, computer programmer, scientist, whatever, <laughs> but they're all men. And that's how that's how Claremont writes Kitty the entire time that she's a super genius and that she doesn't actually like need any of the other X Men yeah. to do this stuff. So it's funny how and he's also having Magneto do it here rather yeah. than one of the X Men, who so he's like always kind of like subtly trying to play with these very Silver Agey tropes yeah. of Marvel and, and and not just Kitty. Later on, uh, I mean later on in New Mutants, Douglas too. Yeah. So Douglas and Kitty was like on par in terms of intelligence. Oh. It's making me think of all the comics I love. Yeah. So this, so this issue ends with a great, a great page of all the individual X Men reacting in their, um, in their cuffs and and with no pants on, presumably somewhere below the panel, possibly in a diaper if he's really trying to drive it home. We don't know all about Magneto's fetishes, nor are we going to ask. And then at the bottom, this really beautiful panel of Magneto's face framed out by his mask, and I just think it's like so detailed, and all of these lines etched on his face and he's basically like I- i'm free to just do whatever i want now like screw the yeah. avengers i and the fantastic <laughs> four they're no threat you x-men you uncoordinated losers who couldn't even figure out how to like land a punch on me were the only thing between me and world domination and that is how we roll into issue 113 which starts with him yeah. you know dominating the world right there's no yep. x-men around anymore so he's just got free reign and he like goes right back to disassembling military powers which is kind of like how we meet him in x-men in one way way back yeah. in the day but actually that scene not so interesting to me i'm way more into lalandra and xavier on their vacation with lalandra and this like glamorous egg-shaped bathing <laughs> yes. cap and her like <laughs> cloak that she's wearing over her swimsuit I, I i'm like did was that did she have that l- in luggage did she have that custom made for her where did she find this egg <laughs> swimming cap that fit over her shiar bird hair and where can i get one Unstable <laughs> molecules. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> like Xavier has 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 an unlimited amount of unstable molecules. So he's basically, oh, um, you need to hide your feathers on your head. So uh, let me give you this, and then she she did that. Uh, but I was I was more fascinated by the fact that how they're like they can't now live without each other. I'm like, why? Because, because they're soulmates, soulmates <laughs> separated across but the why? universe. Yeah. Because the, the because the like, mind has touched. Okay, I would like to meet this. Like, do do we all get the get a soulmate like that? I don't know. Peter's married. Maybe he knows. Yeah. But the thing is, like, I was like, I was like, where's mine version of this? Like, it's like this is just so easy. You know how hard dating is. Dating is really hard, guys. And then they're just like meet each other, and then over the like they became soulmates. I'm like. How are they doing this? Well, but before Can that, we... Xavier thought he was going. He's going. He was going mad. So, so there's a side effect of that. 
Oh, okay. The thing about them I always appreciate, especially in reread, because it's one of those things that, well, Tyler came in around when I did in the 80s and 90s, which is that you get told that they have this big love story, and so you've kind of built it up in your head to be something, what you know, whatever you didn't witness on screen or on panel. And then you go back and read it, and they really don't all they really do is like like they is they hold hands a lot and they and she's like really worried about his health yeah and they go on vacations like there's no they don't really have a connection and so i'm always thinking like do they have anything in common like what do they do for fun uh <laughs> but then i also think that they have that like brain meld and so it's yeah. almost like they they think the same it's like their circuits have been rewired. You know how they say how like people when they've been together a long time, their faces start to look alike because they smile and frown at the same things and they get the same laugh lines. And and over time, like couples start <laughs> to actually resemble each other. It's kind of mm. like this is the ultimate intimacy Claremont version of that. Whereas after they've shared their brainwaves, they kind of just think about things the same and that's what makes them soulmates. But it's like a paradox because they actually have nothing in common. They just think the same as each other. Am I making yeah. any sense here? <laughs> I these are the thoughts. I've been waiting to have this conversation since I was nine. Okay? <laughs> so, so the thing is, like, it's the same issue, though. It's the same mm. issue with all the Disney movies. It's the same yeah. issue with all the other fictions. I think even even now, I mean, there's all these romantic comedies that you that you get out there yeah. where it's like people just fall in love, ref, light, and center. And mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you, though, it really messed me up. As a kid, it really messed me up. And as an adult, when I was going around and dating people and when things were not working out you start thinking there's something wrong with you so this is Mm. not just you know you just start to think that oh what am i not doing right because these people just apparently became such soulmates over like short period of time so that's what i'm actually kind of questioning that (laughs) and i understand i understand that it's very difficult to show people like is it the same problem? We're going to talk about it in later that, mm-hmm. you know, how uh, Wolverine is in so much in love with, Logan is so much in love with Jean. It's like, why? Yeah. Like, why? Other than her face, what, have, what else have you heard about her? Like, why? And so this is, this is why I start questioning these things like now. Mm. It's like, yeah. nothing in common. No, I agree. Pass, I mean, move on. I, I think, I think if you, if you watch too much Hollywood movies or you read too much um, you know, fiction uh, and things like that. Like the the concept of soulmates and like um, love at first sight is pretty much ingrained in you, and you therefore have this idealized um, uh, 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 version of you meeting your soulmate. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know many people. Um, I I don't know many people who can who can basically honestly claim that that is the way they met their better half. So, um, How about yeah. you, Peter? Let's ask some personal questions. Uh, well, I'll, have to uh, share my, I'll have to share our origin story later. But yeah. uh, it, it was actually very movie-esque. Oh. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of like, it's it, there's this thing, it's my favorite communications theory called cultivation theory, which is basically when you see things in media, it's basically what Tyler just explained, you try to conform your life to that. But it's basically, it's more based around violence in media. The idea is like, you know, your grandma or whoever sees on the TV that there were this many murders in town. So she calls you up and she's like, what, don't get murdered. And then, and then you, and then you're like, this is a really violent neighborhood, but it's not violent at all. You just happen 
to see on the news the news story about one murder, which was like the outlier. But you've now cultivated this idea that in reality, um, your world is is dangerous. But I think it actually works for everything, including these love at first sight stories. And so then we tell our own personal stories like, well, it was love at first sight. Like, no, there were factors that made you attracted to this other person and let you know yeah. that you would be compatible with them. That's not love at first sight. That's the mechanical way that our brain finds people for us to be attracted to. But movies have taught us that's love at first sight, you know? And I just, I, maybe I we, should, we should change it to compatible at first sight. Right. Maybe that's yeah. what we should change it to. Instead of saying love at first sight, we're like, yeah, you know what? When I first saw him or her or them, and, you know, we were compatible at first sight. I, that's maybe what that's I what they are. Maybe, you know what? Maybe that's what they are. You know, that's what Lilandra and Professor X are. You know what? I well, it's like, you know, it's like let's, even, let's you know, as an stuff. adult, you know, somebody who doesn't like make a, a lot of close mm-hmm. friends. If I'm like walking down the street and I see, some, like, the perfect example, I was in the grocery store yesterday, just the plain old grocery store. And this couple walks by me and the guy and the, it was a, a male, female couple. And the guy and the couple had a bright pink shirt from Madonna's True Blue tour on it with the huge cover of the Madonna True Blue album, uh, which was 1987, 88, before Like a Prayer. And I was like, I was like, can, I need to be friends with these people. Like, are, can they be my neighbors? Can we hang out? Like, who who is this couple that's around my age where the guy has a bright pink shirt with a Madonna album on it? And I, you know, but it's, it's compatible at first sight. You just know that I would be friends with those people. So did you get their number? No, I didn't. Have your- <laughs> they still, I think they thought I was following them down the aisle, which to be fair, I was. And so then I, you know, uh, and so then they slipped away. <laughs> Don't be Logan, Man. folks. Don't yeah. stalk people. Just Don't stalk people. <laughs> so- Man wearing pink Madonna shirt, please contact Peter. He needs I want to hang out and talk about what our favorite songs from True Blue are. Okay. So now anyway. we get... Now yeah. we get to the second scene here, which... Oh, no, no. No? Let's not move on from this, because he said... Uh, Professor, I want to talk about this, though. Professor X is like, it's the X-Men, Lilandra. I have lost my telepathic report with them. What does that mean? Does he always spying with them? Is it always have a connection with Yeah, he's, he's, like a, he's like one of those of door, nest doorbells, but in their heads. He's always, yeah. he's always checking on them. I know. I think he has a sense, the way that I read yeah. it, Tyler can jump in, is -hmm. that he just always has a sense that they're, like, alive and of their well-being. Like, and he probably could probe a little harder because his power is so strong where Mm -hmm. he could just be reading all of their thoughts, but he's, like, rolled it back enough. But he just has a constant peripheral sense of them being on Earth. That's how I've always read it. Yeah. That's that's how I read it, too. So he's, like, he's always aware of them. Um... Like in this case, it's only his X Men because he doesn't have the cerebral helmets yet, so he's always mm. aware of them. But um, yeah, I mean, it kind of tracks in line with what he's doing now because <laughs> now with the cerebral helmets, he's aware of all mutants at yeah. all time. So mm-hmm. that's the difference. But okay, because the the only reason I say it, though mm-hmm. because it's like why didn't he lose it when Mesmero took them? Well, he's still aware of them; they're still alive. Oh, so it's like, it's a quantitative, not qualitative. Yeah. I mean, that's how I read it. Like, okay. so he's like, he's always aware that they are still alive. And let's say for some reason, one, one person suddenly blinked out and then he would be like, oh, what happened? Oh, it's just Nightcrawler buffing mm. around. So it's, that's why there's like a, a, a loss of signal, boom, 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 <laughs> whatever, or something like that. <laughs> but this is, this is the first issue. 
that Claremont and Byrne share plotting credits. Mm. So if you look at the credits, Claremont and Byrne are now co-plotters. Awesome. And as they're co-plotting, we go back to Magneto's base to get such amazing, memorable scenes seared into our brains as Wolverine being spoon-fed and Beast having his hair lovingly combed. (laughs) But the real breakout star here in a, I think, Mm. extraordinary page of panels is Storm, who even reduced to mental infancy still has the willpower to control her body enough to pick a lock or to attempt to pick a lock with her teeth, right? Which only gets yeah. interrupted by happenstance. And yeah. and, the, and the book really makes this point of being like, even as a baby, Storm had the... <laughs> even at six months old, Storm has the coordination of a young girl. That's yeah. what it says. <laughs> which is like a... Which is weird on so many levels. But then, then to prove the point, it like cuts away to us, to her picking a lock yeah. with her... Picking a lock of a safe with her feet. Yeah. And it's just like, this does signal the beginning of a lot of things to me. Not only the signal of the beginning of the X-Men being able to fight as a team, but the signal of Claremont and Byrne really figuring out that Rogue or that Storm is Storm. the breakout star of this book and, and giving her like more superpowers and more plot armor and more everything because they realize how cool Storm is. One question. Am I the only one who wants to see bows in like, you know, beast fur? You you were really hoping that plot was going to continue. Yeah, and because, Beast's hair was because the get nanny was like, "I have an idea. Would you like bows for your hair?" <laughs> <laughs> um, I absolutely loved that whole sequence of Storm. Yeah. And the thing is, uh, like, it's even like you know he he didn't and she didn't succeed. And then even that that makes sense that her not succeeding here actually makes sense because she's actually. Mm trapped in her body and the fact that she could go that far shows a lot about her and then what she can do and then it was it was like super super well done and then we also got some of the flashback which actually made me want to have issues and issues of her just growing up because it was tough like some of the things that she was made to do no Mm -hmm. child should be going through that and then yeah and then she fails and then nanny's like oh i'm gonna get you you're crying because your bow fell off i'm gonna get you i'm gonna get it seated over here oh that whole thing was so scary i'm like ew please get away from me like that was that was uh but but the thing is one other thing i also want to mention though because i'm actually following gene and cyclops more in depth now for personal reasons <laughs> like, so every, every time she's together they're together i kind of monitor what they're up to so you know one of the recent thing we looked at we saw that how gene is like oh my god cyclops <laughs> you know we need to say we need to get out of here even here she's like poor scott he sounds like he's in agony well girlfriend what about you how are you feeling tell us more about that like even here, there's like, and then, uh, and then we're gonna talk more about Cyclops and their relationship in later issues. But it's just like, why is that a thing? Like, wh- why do you like? Because and this is why I'm getting so frustrated. Because like, Claremont knows how to write women. Like, he's writing trick-ass women right at the same time with storms. Yeah. And why with Jean, he gets gives her all this, no, I like know you what know, you mean. Like, on her. Like, why? Like Jean still can't break out the fact that she is her own person and she has has to always think about Scott. 
and how how Scott right. is feeling. But um, and it I mean, the the moment you started on it, I, I realized Storm that is... was the case. No, I mean, I I completely agree. No, but the thing is, at the same time, Storm is trying to open it. She's she she she's not she's not even thinking about Storm. She's just going on about Scott. Well, and I think that the the greater point there that I take from you is that the storm thing works because the impediment was set up first. Like, it was set up, right. this is going to be really hard to overcome. And so the fact that she doesn't quite overcome it is satisfying both to us as readers and also to us evaluating how Claremont is writing women because it's still an achievement. As opposed to the way that a lot of what Jean has is that Jean just rails against everything and she's trash and stuff. And then it gets to the point where it's inconvenient to the plot for her to be able to be any more powerful than that. And so then Jean hits a limit. So even though the storm scene is so much smaller and it's literally about her moving her head enough to knock off her headdress the yeah. storm scene is so much more satisfying than a jean scene that we had last issue of her doing this big feat because the storm thing actually is pushing against a part of the plot that we already understand yeah. exactly everything that peter said yeah. you know he just pretty much read it off my mind are you professor xavier <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well the, the other thing i really times. appreciate here is that claremont as much as he's reinventing Magneto and many of the classic concepts that he gets his hand on, that he is acknowledging Silver Age stuff. Like, he is making reference to Silver Age stories. He mm -hmm. brings back Asteroid M from X-Men 5, which was from, the, you know, 1963, 64. And, and he does it by way of establishing that Magneto's kind of back up to his full power, beyond what we even ever saw him at before, to really establish just how strong he is here, which again, it's Claremont doing this very wise thing, which is set up the plot first, wow, this is a really strong Magneto, and mm. then give us a really satisfying fight, because we've set up that this Magneto is really strong. And this fight, even though they kind of come at him one at a time, the X-Men are working together, because you get the sense that off-camera, they had a plan. They get freed, yeah. and even when Colossus is punching him and part of your brain goes, Colossus, what are you doing? You're going to get thrown away again. But no, it's just so that Nightcrawler can take off his helmet. Like, they actually are working together. And that's why this fight to me is like the first satisfying X-Men fight, even if it gets interrupted by a volcano falling on their head. Yeah. I loved the Nightcrawler taking the helmet off from him. And I'm like, oh, this is why they don't have Nightcrawler in the movie. <laughs> like you know later movies they don't have Nightcrawler enough because I'm like this is why because he it's so effective to do that it's like yeah let him bamf he just he saw his head right there let him bamf there and took it off and then now you can mess around with his mind I also but, laugh at the I also laugh at the scene where Nightcrawler says uh, there must be a better way when Beast was like swinging him with the tail <laughs> <laughs> That is true. <laughs> that is very true. It must hurt. Well, I know. It has to be better. <laughs> I love that. I love. Well, I love this fight scene. I love, I, I love it. I think that whole Nightcrawler thing is. You know, I I flash back to us reading Giant Size X Men a little while ago, and us laughing that everybody bursts through the wall of of the Krakoa, and it's um, and in the background is just Nightcrawler going yeah, like with his little yeah. fist. <laughs> And like, here's Claremont just in a page figuring out that Nightcrawler's velocity is going to be maintained before and after his teleport. And then mm -hmm. the Nightcrawler can snatch something and teleport away. Like, 
this is a whole new language for how to use him in a fight. And we're slowly yeah. developing that for each character, right? Storm is not just going zap, zap, zap. Like Storm now, you know, can summon up winds and push people away from her. Colossus, we figured out, doesn't just punch people. He can throw Wolverine. Like this yeah. is Claremont establishing the language that now we all take for granted. Like when we see an X-Men fight, we don't expect people to go up to each other one, and, one at a time and punch yeah. each other in the head. We're looking for synergies, right? And this yes. is Claremont kind of inventing this idea of synergies for the X-Men. Not that it had never been done. I mean, Fantastic Four is mm -hmm. all about that, even in the Silver Age. But Claremont here is kind of defining what that looks like for the X-Men. And that's why this issue, for me, is like a really special issue. Mm -hmm. And yep, then definitely. what What did we learn, guys, though? It's like, do not like you know build your under, um, undercover or your the secret base. layer your base under a volcano. Don't do that. <laughs> it will not go well. Well, don't no. do not do that and then bring all of the X-Men there and have a fight in the chamber that's directly beneath the volcano. This is a whole series of unfortunate events. It's not like the it volcano is. base necessarily was a terrible idea. I mean, it was. But, like, why did not... Why not just bring the asteroid? But anyway, so... You know, they have this fight under the volcano, and just as the X-Men are starting to be effective, the volcano kind of cr lava starts crashing through. We get Magneto just being like, see it, chumps. We have Beast and Jean on one side, and the whole rest of the X-Men on the other side. And we don't get to see what happens to the X-Men. We just nope. seen Jean manifest the Phoenix Raptor and bust she and Beast out of there. And the X-Men are dead? But um, the, but I really like the phoenix thing when it's it goes so it's like a we make a bird noise like yeah oh. that's kind of funny <laughs> and also like you know when Jean kind of shows up it's like uh, very um uh, strategically placed cloth holds like you know holes in the clothes yeah. I'm like Ugh, like hate that shit <laughs> but, you know here we are <laughs> so yeah. So, and now the issue ends. Yeah. Well, the or other thing to think about, too, is like, we don't know. if you're reading at this time, you know, month to month, you might believe that Claremont would do this. He's done some yeah. crazy stuff so far, you know? I mean, you, you, we came off of Len Wein doing the giant size issue with Krakoa, swallowing up the old team. He, like, had Gene, you know, crash this jet to the earth and be reborn as a phoenix. Like, and then he just brought Beast back as a member of the old team for 30 days, especially in a land before solicit text. You might have really been convinced that Claremont just got bored with yeah. the whole rest of the team and killed them. Uh, are they are they doing a thirty days now or sixty days? Uh, so I don't know if it's thirty or sixty, but even sixty making it even worse. Even worse, yeah. That was like, and I mean, as a kid, you'll be like running to the to the um, uh, what do you call what, the, what the, kind the of store? corner store or the dime the store? The corner store, like, yeah. Is it, yeah. Like, is it here? Is it here? And you just keep turning that the spinner act. Well, and also Claremont and Byrne, like, understanding that, that this they were publishing monthly at this point. Mm. And the next cover says, the day the X-Men died. Even though the X-Men, spoiler alert, are going to be in the next issue. Yeah. Like, they know that people are going to pick that up off the spinner rack. But before yeah. we get to all that in our next episode, we do have one classic X-Men story to talk about. Actually, even before we do that, there are some classic X-Men additions to Uncanny X-Men 113. So it clarifies more about how Magneto came into all this technology, how he comes into all this money. He's apparently friends with Stephen, Stephen Hawking. Hawking. Uh, so it kind of just like gives us a little bit more texture to yeah. this Magneto thing. I don't think it adds as much as as many of Not the much. classic X-Men issues do. Yeah. And I, I kind of like, oh, it gives Claremont like um, a reason to use 
to use chronometer instead of clock. <laughs> right. Because But what is a clock other than a chronometer? A chronometer. <laughs> a, a chronometer is supposed to be a more precise clock. Okay. Yeah. So, so like so a digital like, watch is a chronometer. Is what I'm hearing. <laughs> Probably. Your phone? I'm not sure. <laughs> And yeah, also, but... also we get some more moments for that captive X-Men. More detail on how like Magneto yeah. is preventing that psychic contact from Xavier. That's mm -hmm. that's making Xavier think them they're all dead. Yeah. Uh, so it so it adds some things, but. So we have two reprints here um, of these two issues, but the only one that we need to talk about is the reprint in classic X-Men 19. And it's not actually contemporaneous to this story. It's actually set even much, much prior to the story because it's dealing with Magneto hunting down war criminals for Israel only to be backstabbed about it. And it's really fascinating because I think you can draw a straight line from this backup story to the movie X-Men First Class, where we have Magneto and he's like in the Brazilian or whatever village and he hunts the Nazi. It's like one of the best scenes in all of the X-Men movies. And this story is that. But the story actually has an extra layer on it that the movie doesn't have, which is yeah. that Magneto's like, well, he was a Nazi, so I captured him. And it turns out that he was like a double agent that was like observing other yeah. Nazis for the state. Um, but Magneto's like, Screw that, basically. Any Nazi's a bad Nazi. I don't care if he's one of your state agents or not. And so this causes Magneto to have a fallout, and it shows that Magneto's... It shows something about Magneto's... Um, what am I trying to say? He doesn't believe in these shades of gray. Magneto is like a bad person's a bad person. Mutants need to be protected. He has these very black and white views. And so he doesn't want to hear, oh, this person's contributing. He's like, no, they were Nazis, and Nazis get killed. Well, but in this case, I think his handler also killed his girlfriend. Well, in revenge, yes. Yeah. Right. But he still would have killed the Nazi even if no, that had that's not true. happened. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's also kind of... I thought... I looked at it more as like it also gave him more ammunition and that humans are bad. Like, you know, this just added to that as well, that even when they want to do good, they can't. Like, you know, because I think there's like... I, I remember there was a one place that where they talk about it, that even if you give humans chances, they can never do the right thing. And I think this kind of comes from that as well, that, you know, that one time I was doing Nazi hunting with them, they would still create all these layers when this doesn't need to happen. Um, this was also very much reminded me of Simon Says, this one image comic. I'm forgetting the writer's name, but it kind of very much follows the same story. And um, it... It's actually like, you know, it's it's based on a real life Nazi hunter um, and it's like kind of reminded me a lot about that stories as well that, you know, like even after the war, it never actually ended for him. Mm -hmm. And he was constantly just like forever fighting one side, like, you know, something over another. And I, I think to your point, it's like humans equivocate, like he, here's a human finding a reason to equivocate enough that they can work with a Nazi. And Magneto, it's kind of Magneto saying, like, that's not going to be me. So it's Claremont giving us a little microcosm of his extremism here. Yeah. Classic X-Men 18. To be fair, I think we tried to talk about this in one of the last few episodes, and we just got distracted by another story. It, yeah. <laughs> it does fit just prior to Mesmero capturing the team, so mm -hmm. it doesn't really go here. But it's just um, Jean wants some quiet time to work on the finer motor skills of her newly expanded telekinesis, only to be interrupted by her teammates and hijinks ensue. Uh, yeah. Any thoughts on this story? It's actually, I think, a pretty good one. 
It is. But I, I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean, I, I, I like it. I mean, I, I like I like how Jin casually basically lifts the entire lick in the air. And then, like, Sean was, like, looking at the fish from below. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty fun. Um, I mean, it, it, it just basically, you know, um, sort of, like, shows the power of Phoenix. Yeah, and it's just one of those fun downtime stories, but it also shows that Jean, she's not in the danger room doing it, you know? And she doesn't want other people around doing it. She knows something's wrong. And of course, Claremont knows this with hindsight because it's a backup story from Classic X-Men. But we don't get these moments in the actual book where Jean is kind of feeling how separate she is from everybody else. Mm -hmm. And and Claremont's going back and giving us a lot of those moments to help us make a little bit more sense out of this Phoenix narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Priya, anything from you on that? No, the more I read the classic X-Men store backup stories, the more I want them to be the real stories yeah. or the real, like, you know. So this was one of those, too. I'm like, oh, why isn't this a real story? Like, you know, in the story. Yeah. Well, and like I that. think, too, this is why, you know, people ask me what one of my, my favorite X-Men stories are. And I'm like, I think you, you have to get the classic X-Men omnibus. It's such a weird thing because it has all these little stories. But so many of these little stories are Claremont doing the things that he always knew to be true about the characters. And so many modern readers haven't read them, right? Tyler and I read them because we were around when they were coming out in floppy. But if you got into Mm -hmm. X-Men like between 1995 and 2015 and you weren't a big back issue pickupper, I mean, they did at least two small trades of them as X-Men vignettes. But most people didn't read them. And I think a lot of these stories and the awareness of what they did for the characters Mm -hmm. got lost. And we're definitely going to see that in the next issue with a specific development for Colossus. Uh, because it's it's all told in the backup story. Exactly. And yeah. I mean, these were canon for me because I read this story for the first time together with the issue in question right. because I collect... Oh. Because I, 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 don't have, I don't have enough money to buy like expensive Uncanny X-Men back issues. Right, so so I can only buy Classic X-Men. Which is I have this like entire run in Classic X-Men now because I, similarly, yeah. before I knew all this epic collection and omnibus and everything would happen, I'm yeah. like, well, I want them as a run of issues. I'll just buy them mm-hmm. as classic. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. All right. Well, that is our episode on Uncanny X-Men 112 and 113. Please, if you want to join us next time, you're going to want to read Uncanny X-Men 114 and 115. We're also going to talk about the backup story in Classic X-Men 21, but not the one in 20, which fits much later. And we're also going to talk a little bit about Mystique's debut in Miss Marvel 16 through 18. But let's be clear, we do not recommend that you read those issues. Just we're, we'll give you all of the context yeah. that you need. So until we come back for that episode, we want to thank you so much for joining us. It's it's so much fun to recontextualize these issues for Tyler and I here free as kind of hot take of reading for the first time. Hot take. Because it gets me so... Hot take. Because it gets me so much deeper into my appreciation of why I love this run so much. And because Mm -hmm. X-Men are what, Freya? It's always better when it's read together. That's right. And so we're so happy to be reading them together with each other and to be reading them together with you in this epic X-Men reread. So for myself, Freya, and Tyler, thanks so much for listening to another episode from Crushing Comics. And please be well. Bye. Bye.